Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to change the way that you think about living and thriving beyond fear, stress less, and manage uncertainty. My first guest is Dean Slider, who has taught natural methods of meditation and awakening since 1970. A grateful student of Eastern and Western sages in several traditions, Dean has completed numerous pilgrimages and retreats in India, Tibet, Nepal, and the West. He is known for conveying authentic teachings in forms that are relaxed, accessible, and down-to-earth. When not writing or teaching, he narrates audiobooks, administers the Awakening Prison Art Project, makes music, and happily tools around my neck of the woods or in Santa Monica, California on his Vespa. Hi, Dean. Thanks for joining me on the show. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, well, uh, first of all, I want to say that what caught my eye about your book, Fear Less, is one of the reviews said this is about OM meeting we. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Let's talk right. about the we of right. fear. <laughs> Oh, yeah. We is one of my very favorite mantras. And, you know, people often think of mantra as something very weird or mystical or exotic or Eastern. Mantra is a very scientific thing. It's it's one of the best, most powerful tools in the, the toolbox for optimizing our consciousness. It's psychoacoustically optimized sound, a sound that resonates in the nervous system in a way that makes things just go better. So when we say we... And in my workshops, which I do across the country, I have people, there's also a mudra, hand gesture that goes with this mantra, which of course is throwing your hands up in the air, <laughs> and a, a gesture of wild exuberance. And a good experiment for people to do, and you can do this in the privacy of your homes where you don't have to worry about looking like an idiot, is three times, throw your hands up in the air, go, wee, and then try to be depressed Impossible. or scared. Yeah, try to be depressed, scared, angry. You cannot do it. And that's because of the connection between mind and body. This is something called the facial feedback hypothesis, which goes all the way back to Charles Darwin, that when we feel joy, let's say, inside or anger inside or any feeling inside, it reflects in our face, but it also goes the other way. Whatever's going on in our face tends to get reflected in the way the nervous system functions. And you can't say we without smiling. Yeah, it's fascinating. I want to just go back to the title of your book, Fear yeah. Less, because fear is a topic that is on many of our minds, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. We are living in fearful times for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And it's my belief, and in working with clients myself, that they say, oh, I'm so scared, I'm so scared, I'm in fear. Well, we are never going to get rid of fear. 
Right. And that's why, you know, often people mispronounce the title of my book. They say, oh, fearless. And that word fearless has become very popular. You see it on T-shirts and in advertising. I've never met anyone who's fearless. I'm not fearless. I've met the Dalai Lama. He's not fearless. He He's scared of worms, but he jokes about it. Yeah. So and kind of there it is, is right there in a nutshell that the, our fears and the other things that I mentioned in the subtitle of the book, anxiety, anger, addiction, addictive cravings, they can seem like these big, scary monsters just looming over us. But if you look a little closer, you may notice that they're really they're big, but they're like the the balloons in the Macy's Day Parade. And uh, they're, <laughs> That's they're, a good, yeah, good vision, they're, good metaphor. Yeah, they're they're pumped up full of hot air, and that hot air is the air of our own concepts around them. We feed them with our concepts, with our ideation about them. Now, all it takes is a one or two tiny little pinpricks to start letting the air out of that balloon. So the balloon may never go away, but after a while, instead of being this scary thing looming over you, it just becomes a little, you know, soft, playful thing bouncing around your ankles, a little bath toy or something. So what I do in my teaching and in my writing is to provide some of those pins. uh, And those are tools like, for example, using the mantra, we and there are other things we can do with voice, with breath, with body with mind, with simple meditative techniques that let the hot air out of those things. And what I hear you saying is your work really focuses on bringing mindfulness into action that is includes uh, traditional meditation forms, but also non-traditional meditation forms. Yeah, you know, one of my teachers once said, the tradition is innovation. Hmm. And I am, you know, I mean, I've trained for decades in traditional teachings coming out of mainly India and Tibet. And I think it's very important. I know for me, it's important to be deeply familiar with those traditions and to look at things that have been road tested over the centuries rather than, okay, I'm just going to make something up. You can make things up. You can innovate if you're deeply familiar with the traditions and have a sense of why some things have persisted and kind of, you know, the deep mechanics of of how things work. I'll give you one example, if I may. Yes, of course. Right near the beginning of my book, I have a chapter that's two pages long. I like to I, I like to write things that work for people with short attention spans like myself. Amen. So, yeah. <laughs> So this two-page chapter is titled Breathe Through Your Feet, and the chapter was actually picked up by Oprah's website when the book was published. It's still up there. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people all over the country and other countries about this breathing through your feet technique, which is very simply, and people listening can do this right now, your next in-breath, as you breathe in, just kind of imagine, kind of feel that you're breathing in through the soles of your feet. And now as you're breathing out, breathing out through the soles of the feet. Meanwhile, sounds are going on, thoughts are going on. Fine, don't try to push anything away. Breathing in through the soles of the feet and breathing out through the soles of the feet. Not trying to concentrate, not trying to feel anything special. And again, breathing in through the soles of the feet and breathing out through the soles of the feet. And done. Now, you may notice that things feel a little more settled, yeah. centered, 
right? You feel that? Things feel more centered, more chill. It's amazing. I love that this, you know, I can share this with someone in 30 seconds, and then they've got this tool they can use for the rest of their lives. Now, the interesting thing is, so I don't know where I came up with this. It was through, you know, my constant research and development in, within the, the laboratory of my own nervous system. And then I share it with, if it seems to be working for me, I share it with my students and, you know, they confirm that it works. When I put this in the book, I got an email from a yoga teacher in Austin who said, I love the breathing through the feet. Of course, you got that out of the research of Dr. So-and-so who showed the connection between the arches of the feet and the bup, 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 and the vagus nerve. <laughs> so I said, "Wow, okay, I guess that's what I did. Yeah, but you know, you did, but you, you intuited it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, I mean, this is very parallel to something that anyone who takes yoga classes is probably familiar with, what they call... Ujjayi breath. Mm -hmm. uh, I call it Darth Vader breath. You know. Let's do it. <laughs> right. And and that comes the way you do that is with a constriction in the back of the throat. Of course, not enough to strain, just enough to make that kind of raspy Darth Vader sound. Now that was first discovered by yogis in the, the forests of India, you know, thousands of years ago. And they, as you say, it's intuition, but it's also careful research and development, really just pragmatically paying attention to what works. And what they found was, boy, that really cools things out. That really settles things down. Now, centuries later, uh, physiologists realized that when you constrict the back of the throat like that in your breathing, that stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system and settles down the sympathetic nervous system, which means that the fight or flight syndrome goes away and it's opposite what we call can call the stay and play syndrome comes to the fore. I love that, the stay and play. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about fear for a second, because, yeah. you know, we all have it. We all know what it feels like. Most of us would say, oh, I don't want to be afraid. Mm. Uh, you know, I would argue that being afraid and certainly doing things that make us fearful can be good. I'm not talking about mortal fear for our safety, but the risk. Healthy risk is essential for growth. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing is, taking healthy risks becomes easier and easier as you get more grounded in the core of your own being. And that's ultimately where, where all of my teaching and, and everything that I've learned from my own teachers is, is pointing that at the core, you know, on the surface, okay, good. We breathe through our feet or we say, we, we become more relaxed. We become more chill. We become a little bit less kicked around by our fear or our rage or whatever. Ultimately, all of this is pointing to settling into the core of your own being, which all the great sages have said. You know, the Buddha said, on the outside is samsara, on the inside is nirvana. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's not just getting more relaxed, that there actually is, at the kernel of your own being, there is something that doesn't change, something that doesn't that isn't susceptible to anything, <laughs> something yeah. that is not subject to when things get hot, your body gets hot. 
But that, that beingness does not get hot. When your body gets cold, that beingness does not get cold. It does not get afraid. It's transcendental. It's beyond all of that. And more and, and, you know, the core technique for me is natural meditation. And I show people, as I've learned from my own teachers, how to, rather than try to meditate, which is the mistake most people make, they try, <laughs> they, you know, because that's a contradiction in terms. Right. Trying to meditate is like, it's like trying to flatten out all the waves on the surface of the ocean with a, by, by beating them with a paddle, you just stir up the water more. Natural meditation is just allowing gravity to pull you down and into the silent water, which was always there about a foot below the surface. And it's really good to do that for, you know, a few minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, and more and more than you start operating all the time from that place, that place of just beingness. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with my guest today, Dean Slider, to learn more about Dean's work. And the book we're talking about today is Fear Less. Go to DeanWords.com. On Twitter, you can find Dean at Dean Slider, and that's S-L-U-Y-T-E-R. And on Facebook, that page is Natural Meditation Book. We're going to jump off for a second. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Before we take that break, I want to mention a way I keep my own brain happy. Like so many of you, I try to learn something new every day. And that's why I'm a big fan of Blinkist, a new time-efficient app that serves my curious mind and a hunger for lifelong learning. In this fast-paced world, it's a challenge to juggle life's responsibilities and personal growth. This is where Blinkist comes in to help me nurture my well-being with consciously crafted brain food. Blinkist is the only app that distills the best takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to short and sweet, readable and audible summaries of 15 minutes or less. Blinkist is made for busy folks like you and me who like to read and want to stay informed but just don't have enough hours in the day to do it all. Blinkist makes it easy to finish four books in a day while you're on the go. More than 8 million people are using the massive and growing Blinkist library of self-help, business, health, history books, and more. I like Blinkist because in 15 minutes or less, I can expand my intelligence on any subject and boost my happiness through greater knowledge. I use Blinkist when I'm driving in the car. It helps make my travel time more relaxed and enjoyable. I've recently listened to Start With The Why by Simon Sinek and How To Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie, and I highly recommend them both to you. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash happiness and start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash happiness. Remember, that's Blinkist.com slash happiness. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to change the way that you think about living and thriving beyond fear, stress less, and manage uncertainty. My guest is Dean Slider, and we've been talking about his new book. All right, Dean, let's talk about depression. Okay. The the big, ugly monster. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Boy, it sucks. It does. Uh, Yeah. The big one. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I have personal familiarity with depression. There's there's uh, quite a bit of it that runs through my family. I've had experiences of it. And I'm here to say that it's not a one-way ticket. You can get out from under depression. It's a, you know, it's a neurophysiological phenomenon and by doing using these as you say, I love that word, interventions, you can get your whole neurophysiological situation, you can change it, you can optimize it. And some of the things are are simple. You can start with, for example, if you're depressed, or, you know, whether it's really chronic clinical depression, or if just when you wake up in the morning, you're grouchy, you do that wee mantra three times. (laughs) Now, for a depressed person, that is the last thing in the world you're going to want to do. You're going to say that is so stupid. Now get out of here with this wee BS, but just, you know, tie yourself to the mask, whatever, just do it. Yeah. Another one, which is very effective is uh, because in depression, you tend to withdraw from the senses. You tend to withdraw from the five senses, close down. From everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> you withdraw from everything. Right. So it's good to do things that open up the senses. For instance, there's a few things you can do in the shower. So this way you're starting every day, starting the morning with these these anti-depression moves. One of them is to sing in the shower, which you're not going to, going to want to do. But just do it. Sing anything. Sing Broadway tunes. Sing the Star Spangled Banner. It's really good to sing Descending Fifths. Ah, like Flintstones, meet the Flint. Ah, that's good for everyone. For reasons that we don't have time to talk about right now, I talk about it in the book. The descending fifth is the most relaxing opening musical interval there is. Ah, like the opening of the Star Spangled Banner also. You notice Um, I didn't sing that with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, people who say I can't sing, not true. And I talk about that in the book, how to get past that thing that, oh, I can't sing. That's just a, a concept. The other thing you can do in the shower is at the near the end of your shower, you've been enjoying your nice warm shower. So you can take a minute to, to do this gradually. Turn the water to cold. Yeah. Yeah. That'll snap you out of it, Loretta. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's yes, true. That, yeah. That, well, that, and, and also get one of those scratchy brushes or mitts. And scrub your skin, you know, not enough to hurt yourself, but all this stuff, you know, getting a nice scratchy washcloth, again, helps start the day by opening up the senses. And that cold water will snap you out of, you know, whatever depressive conceptualization you're, you might be starting your day by spiraling down into, it snaps you out of it. You can't, you can't think and go, ah, at the same time. Let's, let's back it up for a second, because people who are listening to this episode may think, ha, huh, you don't know what depression is like. I can't even get out of bed. Well, yes, I, A, I do know what it's like. And B, right. if you are to the point where you cannot get out of bed, what are some techniques that you can offer to people to motivate movement from the bed to the shower? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. First of all, let me point out, I'm not a licensed medical, you know, anything. And certainly there are cases where, you know, professional assistance is required. So if there's any doubt, get the professionals on the case. If you're lying there in the bed to start to do anything, start to move, start to if you're lying on your back, you can still sing. You can still shout mantras. You can start. Okay, you say, "Okay, I'm paralyzed. I can't move. I'm familiar with that feeling. Is it true that you're paralyzed and you can't move? Find it. Can you find one part of your body that you can move? Okay, just freaking move that one. Now find another one. Start anywhere and do something. I think you bring up a very good point because when we are in a depression cycle, you know, that loop is happening in the brain. So moving from an inner referenced experience to an outer referenced one, however small, begins the shift. Right. And of course, you know, it's really good to be on the buddy system with this stuff. You know, it's good to have a friend who's going to, when they notice you're not coming out the door to come over and rip the covers off of you and, and pull the the bag of cookies out of your hand and push you out of the bed. Sometimes it comes to that. Well, peer-based support is probably the best methodology for a lot of things in our lives, you know, whether it is maintaining sobriety, if one is in uh, recovery from substance abuse, recovery from depression, wanting to achieve a major goal like completing a marathon or financial solvency. I mean, we need to outsource support. We can't do it alone. Right, right, right. And since you mentioned addiction, I want to talk a little bit about that. I host a meditation session biweekly. It's usually every other Tuesday night here in Santa Monica. It's free. It's open to everyone. Anyone in the L.A. area, if you come to to my website, you can get in touch with me about that. Also, I stream it on YouTube so you can watch it live or you can watch the, the archived sessions on my YouTube channel. And quite a few people in the local recovery community have discovered our sessions and started coming. And what a lot of them tell me is, okay, I'm doing the 12 steps or I'm doing whatever I'm doing, and that's great, but this is the missing ingredient. This natural meditation, this settling down into your core is the special sauce that was missing. And I I talk more about this in the book. There's actually some very interesting history showing that Bill Wilson, the founder of the 12 Steps, knew that, knew that the 11th step, making conscious contact with the higher power, needed better inner technology. Mm. Uh, And he actually did some interesting exploration on that. And shortly before he died, he learned to do this kind of natural meditation from a friend of mine, an old teaching colleague of mine. And he was dying of emphysema from smoking all those cigarettes and in a completely weakened state. It was a two or three weeks, I think, before he died. And after his first meditation, he jumped up out of the bed, ran out the door. And this was in New England in the winter, ran out the door to breathe the crisp winter air, ran back into the house and shouted, this stuff works. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's ancient technology or it works. And in a climate that we're living in today, and this is a global climate of fear, uncertainty that will not go away. This is the best, one of the best ways that I know to manage myself is through techniques like you teach. And and I mentioned in your book, fear less. 
Right. And it's managing ourselves, and it's also doing something about the world. You know, I grew up in a family of political activists, peace activists, and I noticed early on that, you know, my parents and a lot of their friends, they would have meetings of their organizations in our living room, and they were activists for peace, but they didn't have a lot of peace within themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and then one of my earliest teachers, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, one day I heard him say, for the light bulb to light up the room, it first has to be lit within itself. I said, yes. Yes, yes. You know, and this is like fanning the pilot light. When we do this, this mm. kind of work, you know, if you imagine each one of us has a pilot light, which I believe that we do, you know, that we're mm. light, and the more we feed it constructively and positively, the brighter it becomes and the more of use it can be. Mm-hmm. So it's not yep. wanton fire, you know, it's useful energy. <laughs> right, right. Well, Dean, we're out of yes. time. And so ah. I want our listeners to go buy the book, Fear Less, Living Beyond Fear, Anxiety, Anger, and Addiction. The author and my guest today is Dean Slider. To learn more about Dean's work, his words, his meditations, even showing up if you're in the Southern California area or seeing it on his YouTube channel, please visit his website, deanwords.com, on Twitter at Dean Slider, and that's S-L-U-Y-T-E-R. And on Facebook, he could be found at Natural Meditation Book. Dean, thanks for hanging out with me. Thank you. It's really been fun. Oh, pleasure. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about living and thriving beyond fear, stressing less and managing uncertainty. We're going to kind of turn the corner a little bit and talk about the value of rituals and routine that help us manage fear and anxiety when they're present. My next guest is Martin Lang, PhD. Dr. Martin Lang is a researcher at Masaryk University in the Czech Republic. He researches the effects of ritual behavior on anxiety and social bonding. He has worked at the Anthropology Department at the University of Connecticut and the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. He focuses now on the evolutionary underpinnings of ritual commitment signaling, on the cultural evolution of moralistic gods, on the role of music and synchronous movement in human cooperation, and the relationship between ritualized behavior and anxiety. Martin, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to talk with you about this. Hi, and thanks for inviting me. Of course. I want to, first of all, ask What inspired you to research this unique area of human behavior? Mm -hmm. So it all starts with me having a PhD from religious studies. So I was really interested 
first in religion. And then if you look at various religious phenomena across the world, you will see that ritual behavior is really widespread. And so that draws me to the question why we see rituals practically in all cultures. And, you know, if you start to look at the recurring parts of rituals and, and its recurring characteristics, you may also see that we see rituals in different contexts like sports or military. So basically, I was thinking, this is really interesting that humans engage in these, these behaviors. And I wanted to know why this might be the case. It is fascinating when we Take a moment. I'm going to just challenge all of our listeners to take a mm-hmm. moment and think of think of rituals that you have, things that you do on a daily basis or to prepare for something that you believe will either stimulate good luck or good fortune or be protective in some nature. We all have these little things that we do. Right, exactly. So, of course, the obvious example would be religious rituals. So, you know, we go to church or to mosque or to some other temples or personally we may pray or do some rituals that, you know, these religious system provide. But uh, many people may also have their own rituals, like they need to have a particular way of drinking coffee in the morning. And, you know, if these uh, rituals are not uh, possible to do for some reasons, it may actually, you know, destroy your day or make you feel really bad. So there may be uh, various types of rituals. You also mentioned lucky charms, you know, so there are famous examples from uh, baseball players who have their specific rituals you know, before going to the game. And again, these rituals are extremely important for their performance. So we can see rituals really uh, everywhere. And what's funny about them is that we believe in them so much that our performance can actually be impeded if we don't do them. Exactly. There are some studies of basketball players. And so they also, a lot of the players perform their own rituals before uh, free throws. And we do see that if they can't perform these rituals, they actually do perform worse afterwards in the free throws. My partner, Christopher, is a softball player. And Mm -hmm. every spring season, he wears the same uniform over and over and over again when he plays, and he refuses to wash it until the season is over because he says that if he washes it, he'll he'll get on a losing streak. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's, that's a very nice example. So uh, I think it, what it, this shows is that it, it is related to a way our human mind works. And this is actually part of what I'm interested in because I do think that rituals can tell us a lot about how human mind has evolved and how it actually works. Because in, in my view, this relates to is that rituals often also occur in very specific uh, cases. And usually the, the cases has to do with some unpredictable events. So those are things that we do not really have control over. So we talked about uh, baseball you know, if you go to, to bat at baseball, it's very difficult to predict if you are going to be successful or not. And that's true for these professional sports, but also, you know, in other contexts like wars, for example. So there are some studies from uh, wars in Israel and the frequency of prayer perf- performance. And what we can see there is that uh, really when people face Things like the possibility of bombardment, which is, again, unpredictable. We don't know when it's going to come. We don't have any control over it. And moreover, you know, it's extremely dangerous to us or there are high stakes. 
So then people would start to perform rituals because it's at least something to do. It's better than to do nothing. So it's at least something to do. So in, in my view, all this, this corresponds to the fact that we as humans really do not tolerate uncertainty that much. And uh, so we need to find some patterns, some patterns in our behaviors, which help us to have or at least to try to get some control over this uncertainty. And this relates back to, to your example with, with not washing the dress, because it's in, in other way, it's again, trying to influence these, these uncertain events that, that are going to happen in the future. And, you know, your husband may think, well, you know, because this dress worked before, it may work again. So I would rather not wash it to not, you know, destroy the, the uh, lucky, uh, lucky charm that it gave me. Can I say it's disgusting, but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. The, the best thing is that it works. So It works for him. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about ritual and anxiety and stress, because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in my experience, it can work two ways, right? That mm -hmm. ritual can help us manage anxiety and stress, such as the examples that you've just given, or it can exacerbate it. It can increase it. Yes, that's true. And I guess one thing is that so if you get used to performing some rituals and, you know, that would relate back to the uh, example I gave with the basketball basketball players, if you are used to performing some rituals and, you know, then the inability to perform them actually destroys your routine and may actually severely hamper your performance. But also, uh, you know, there are other examples from the ethnographic record where we do see that, that rituals are being actually specifically designed in order to increase anxiety, like different forms of initiation rituals. So there, you know, it's the, the relationship is a little bit more complicated because the structure of ritual behavior, you know, may have a different functions based on the context where rituals are being used. So what I'm dealing with in my research are mostly, you know, the types of rituals that I think, you know, people perform to in order to regain back their control over over the future. But of course, there are other rituals that, that uh, you know, in some cases may really be uh, actually increasing anxiety for a different purpose. I was just going to jump in and give an example that comes to mind in terms of ceremonial hand washing. In many spiritual traditions, either have the washing of the hands or the feet as a preparation or an offering to God or the creator. And that's one end of the spectrum, right? And then the mm -hmm, other end mm -hmm. is the, the serial hand washer, one who mm -hmm. becomes compulsive in this hand washing. Right, right, exactly. So that's another good example of uh, how rituals may go wrong. And, and that's, that's the second, second part of, of the answer that I wanted to mention is that, of course, if uh, you face some situation that you cannot control and you try to influence the future, so you perform your ritual and then it should give you the feeling that, you know, you did what you could. But uh, of course, we we know that from uh, some uh, psychopathological disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder, rituals may actually even worsen these, these symptoms because you may try to think that you performed your rituals, but you don't feel like it helped. You don't feel like it's enough. So you perform these actions again and again. And, and in this sense, these patients or specifically the OCD patients are caught in, in the loop of performing the same rigid behavior again and again. And is there a physiological response in the brain? 
Yes, yeah, so there is at least one model I know of, one neurological model that has been put forward by Pascal Boyer and Pierre Leonard. And this is exactly the type of argument they are making is that there is some sort of switch uh, when uh, so so they claim that we have this evolved uh, hazard precautions system which basically motivates us to, you know the anxiety motivates us to take precautions when we think you know we may be in danger and if healthy people you know do all what they can so they take these precautions the feedback loop in the system closes and the system then thinks that you know we did all we could we are safe but in OCD patients this doesn't happen and so the behavior repeats again and again. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation with Dr. Martin Lang to learn more about his work, his research. You can find him at www.martinlang.cz. It's a little bit different. So that's martinlang.cz on Twitter at martinlangcz. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I'm talking with Professor Martin Lang about the mysteries of routine and ritual in managing fear and uncertainty in our lives. So, Martin, before the break, you were talking a little bit about our brains and speculation Mm -hmm. of what happens to our brains when we are in this performance of rituals in comparison with somebody who has OCD and cannot stop themselves from the serial repetition of that ritual. I wanted to ask you how you test your ideas. Okay, so I guess the first thing to say is that the fact that, so I'm interested in cultural rituals, right? And a link to OCD, I think there, it's a very good analogy, but just to make this clear for, for the listeners, I work with healthy populations. Yes. Now, now for the testing <laughs> itself. Oh, come on, that's I, highly overrated. <laughs> <laughs> So for the experiments themselves, I guess uh, I should start with saying that, you know, the idea that ritual behaviors are performed in these uncertain contexts in, in order to alleviate anxiety is actually pretty old. And it dates back to the beginning of 20th century to one of the famous anthropologists called Bronislav Malinowski. So it's not really a new idea. However, what's new and, and what I think me and my colleagues 
brought was the ability to use you know modern technology and modern research methods to actually look at this question on uh, the physiological level so so what we did was that we first took this question into two parts because what the claim really says is that first if people are anxious they are going to perform rituals and then second the ritual performance itself should then lead to the anxiety alleviation. So we did explore both of these questions. For the first question, that is whether anxious situations lead to ritual performance, what we did was that we recruited uh, university students at Masaryk University, and we divided them into two groups. In one group, we increased their stress levels, by saying that they are going to have to uh, give a speech in front of expert committee that will judge their performance. That's kind of standard ways in psychology to uh, increase stress. <laughs> While uh, <laughs> in the second group, these people are not stressed. And then uh, for both groups, before they were going to give the speech or end the experiment, we asked them to clean an object they were supposed to speak about. And that period of cleaning was our main measurement. So what we did there was that we uh, used these devices, which are called uh, accelerometers, which measure the acceleration of hands. And what we were able to do was to assess the behavioral patterns during cleaning and see the difference between the stressed people and the, the non-stressed groups. And what we saw was that in the uh, people who were stressed, that they perform this cleaning in specific patterns that are uh, characteristics of ritualized behavior. So, you know, so these movements would be very repetitive and they would be also very rigid. So the people would be cleaning in specific patterns rather than using uh, variable movements. So that, I think, was nice illustration of the principle when people are anxious, you know, and they are in these situations that they cannot predict. They try to do some movements or some types of behaviors that are very well predictable, like these ritualized movements, which are repetitive and rigid. So, so for us, that was a support for the first question. Now, for the uh, second question, that is whether rituals, rituals actually help to alleviate anxiety, we use the same type of design, uh, the experimental design, but this time we stressed both groups. So we had two groups and we stressed both groups. And instead of asking them to clean and, you know, measuring their movements, this time we actually tell them, sort of tell them what to do in a way that uh, we have a, a computer program that is being projected on a screen. And there is a dot that moves over the screen. And our participants are supposed to uh, follow this dot with their uh, hand. And uh, in one group, which we call ritual, the dot moves in a very predictable fashion. And again, the, the, the movements of the dot are uh, repetitive and rigid, while in the second control group, the movements of the dot are more variable. So what we are doing here is that we are trying to actually create sort of uh, ritual movements that, you know, should elevate anxiety. Now, unfortunately, we don't have results from this experiment yet. This is something we are testing uh, at the moment. But there is another interesting experiment that we have conducted. And it's another very important component to, to our approach. So, so what I described right now were two laboratory experiments. But of course, if you connect these with, you know, what we talked about in the first section, 
of our discussion, it may seem like it's very detached from the actual rituals that people perform. You know, I was talking just about some type of movements which are very rigid and repetitive. So in order to see how this may actually work in the real real life, uh, we did similar experiment in Mauritius, uh, which is uh, our field site where we do experiments uh, with naturally occurring rituals. And there we again... Lucky you, by the way. (laughs) It's a very nice destination to do do research in. But it's also very interesting because there are many cultures uh, at the island. So there is a high culture and religious diversity. So so for us, it's really a very good place to, uh, you know, test some of our questions like the one I'm interested in. And so what we did there was that we again recruited uh, people from the local population and specifically, it was the Hindu population and one group we invited to their local temple. And again, we used our uh, old uh, stressful paradigm uh, to increase anxiety. So they had to prepare a speech that should be presented in front of experts. But this time we just let them to perform their, their own rituals. Just we didn't give them any constraints. We just said, do what you are used to doing. And that would be in the ritual group. And then in the control group, we just ask them to sit in silence for 10 minutes. (laughs) Makes it worse, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so what we see here is that, again, the ritual performance actually helped to decrease anxiety. And it's both on the the level of self-report. So we then ask people, you know, we ask them before and after the experiment, how anxious they feel. And we do see that in the ritual condition, people reported feeling less anxious. But we also used various physiological measurements. And we do see that the, the effect is actually on the on the physiological level on, on things like how much people sweat, and on their heart rates. So that's uh, very encouraging that, you know, it seems like uh, these uh, effects of ritual behavior can be tracked down also to these physiological levels. Uh, which can have, you know, then further implications for for things like general health. Did you uh, test cortisol levels? No, not not in this experiment, although uh, right now there is a follow-up project uh, running in Brno at uh, Levina, which is the uh, laboratory where I work. And there, my colleagues are going to use cortisol from saliva and also uh, hair cortisol. So the first one would be just to see how ritual affects, you know, like the stress levels at the moment. But also we can use the hair cortisol to see more uh, sort of like a trait stress uh, for people because you can track their their stress uh, levels, you know, back a couple of months. So you can see also whether you know some other uh, naturally occurring stressors would have impacted the, the results of the experiment because when you look at certain rituals let's say prayer meditation even exercise right cardiovascular exercise there will be a lowering of cortisol, right? After the performance mm-hmm. of the ritual. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's the thing that we are looking at one mechanism uh, how rituals can work. But, you know, of course, there can be many ways. And, you know, I'm talking about uh, rituals and their effects on anxiety. But of course, 
most listeners, I think, would know about meditation and practice of meditation, which is, I guess, even more famous, you know, for calming down and decreasing anxiety. So, so there are definitely many different uh, mechanisms how rituals can work, and also many different functions that that rituals can have. So, so as you said in the beginning, I'm looking at you know rituals and anxiety, but I also study you know, ritualized dancing and singing and how this can actually bring people together. So, so definitely there are many ways, uh, you know, this could be assessed. Let's talk a little bit about the ritualized movement, because I think there's mm-hmm. something very interesting when you look at, for example, a gospel group or a choir mm-hmm. singing, what happens to the performers and the audience? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in my view, let me maybe ask you first, so this, you mean like what happens to their anxiety or what happens to like their sense of a group and, you know, cooperation? I would say both. And let's say you come in from a, a hard day and you, it doesn't mm-hmm. even have to be in the context of spiritual practice or religion. Let's say you, mm-hmm. you, you sing, you, you sing mm-hmm. with a bunch of friends. You can be very stressed and lack focus. And then you come in mm-hmm. and you're with, you're with your community. You start singing and suddenly mm-hmm. you experience not only the decrease of the anxiety or stress, but also elevation. Okay, so that's a very interesting question, and uh, it's something I was wondering about because if you look into uh, you know more social psychology research on anxiety, uh, one of the important factors they often stress is you know social support and social support of the community and how this can help with uh, anxiety of of the individual, and what we know from other research is that, you know, collective rituals can really strengthen uh, group commitment and and group support and group cohesion. So uh, following your question, uh, I think uh, it could be hypothesized that, you know, if anxious people can find uh, or can find a community where they can engage in these rituals, ritualized actions like dancing and singing, which, which brings the community together, they may actually also feel like they really have social support, which can be manifested, you know, on many different levels. And this can also have very important effects on the anxiety levels. This is a fascinating area of research. I'm so glad that you have been taken by this subject matter. Let me ask you a little bit about your own rituals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a question I often get. I have to say I don't have many, <laughs> and uh, which is yeah, it's, it's uh, surprising, I guess, given that I'm dealing with this uh, topic, but definitely I do have uh, a ritualized coffee drinking habit. I had a uh, feeling where, you were going to say that. <laughs> where uh, I'm very particular about my espresso and, you know, the way I have to prepare it. And usually I have to do it myself in order to, you know, follow all the steps that I want there to be. So that's, I guess, the most ritualized behavior I engage in a couple of times a day. So Interesting. Talk a little bit. We're almost out of time, but I want you to uh, sort of touch upon spirituality and spiritual practice. I'm not even going to use religion. Mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. as the example, the importance of the role in managing our anxiety or in managing mm-hmm. our, our mood. So I'll just give you my own view, like my own professional view on this. And, you know, it's very limited, but 
The other types of research that I'm familiar with deals with what they call ritual efficacy. And so they try to basically understand how rituals are functioning. So why people think that, you know, doing this specific ritual as opposed to a different ritual should work. And there the connection to various, you know, spiritual beings or gods or deities may be really important because belief in in such beings and the fact that they often demand this this ritual performance may be really important because they provide sort of legitimization for the effects of rituals and you know they provide this this framework in which uh, you know these particular behaviors should be functional because you know they are guaranteed by these uh, spiritual beings so uh you know, talking when I said in the beginning that I was interested in religion and then narrowed down my research to rituals, it's it's actually a, like a huge reduction. And it's interesting to ask, you know, how rituals actually work in this whole religious systems and how they interact with, with other parts of what we usually call religion. And, you know, specifically, that would be these these uh, supernatural beings. Well, belief seems to be the the core ingredient, right? The belief Mm -hmm. in the possibility of it working. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you know, why not? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, this is this is interesting. So I do think that belief is important and it definitely helps. But, for example, returning back to baseball players, you know, some ethnographies mentioned that a lot of these players say they don't believe their rituals work. But. They do them anyways, you know, just to be sure. <laughs> well, if they might work, <laughs> just, so. just in case. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, it, this is a fascinating subject, and we'll have to talk more about this as your research is completed, because mm-hmm. we're all looking for ways to organize our lives, our experiences, to give meaning to our lives, to create more joy within ourselves and our communities. And this area of ritual and practice and uh, routine and structure in my own experience, is what was very helpful to me and those that I work with. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating topic. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to future results of, of this research. I am too. To learn more about the work of Dr. Martin Lang, please visit his website, which is martinlang.cz. It is unique, martinlang.cz. You can find him on Twitter at martinlang.cz. CZ. And before we shoot out of here, Martin, I wanted to ask you about technology, digital technology and ritual. Mm -hmm. You know, we have become addicted to all of our little gadgets. And um, Mm -hmm. does this tap into ritual if we uh, or is it just madness and addiction? (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I never thought about this. And so I I wouldn't think necessarily this has to do something with rituals. You know, it's more about routine and, you know, the ways we try to access information. And, you know, it's definitely interesting from evolutionary point of view, you know, given how people are really hungry about like what type of information they seek out, like, you know, the social information mostly and, you know, gossips and these things. And that I think for me, you know, that explains partly the madness about social media and, and all this, but I wouldn't necessarily have an example that would have to do something with rituals. So I'm afraid I don't have a good answer Yet. for that. You never know.
<laughs> sure. <laughs> you may you may have a you may have a research experiment that comes your way. Please right. come back and share it with us because <laughs> I think there is ritualized usage of these devices. I have college age children and I definitely mm-hmm. see how as young adults there is a methodology to their usage and their engagement mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's new right mm-hmm. this is new mm-hmm. to all right. of us no, it's, I never thought about this but I, I agree I think you are right so it should be a very interesting idea for future research I had to think about it a little bit more once again to learn more about the work of Dr. Martin Lang please visit him over at martinlang.cz thanks for joining me Martin thanks for inviting me it was oh, a pleasure a pleasure Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dean Slider and Professor Martin Lang, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.